And then if you need a magnifying glass. It's funny, everybody over the age of 50 is laughing. Everybody else is like, what's he talking about? Ephesians chapter 3. In the first two chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he has laid out for us the vast treasuries of God's riches that are available to a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, the biggest hindrance or stumbling block, if you would, that a person faces as it relates to receiving God's riches or receiving God's fullness or his blessing upon their lives is not a lack of faith in the existence of God. Most people are, or most Christians, I mean, Paul isn't writing this to a group of unbelievers, he's writing this to a group of Christians. And most Christians obviously believe in God's existence. Many, most Christians believe in the truth and the accuracy of the message of the Bible and the claims that it makes. Someone who believes in God has no problem with the claims of the miraculous and the things that have happened throughout the chronicles of history that God has done, the parting of the Red Sea and all the rest. And we don't, by and large, as Christians ever, doubt the ability of God to perform those things that He has spoken in His Word. So it isn't a lack of faith in God's ability that keeps Christians from receiving God's fullness. But rather, if there is anything that hinders a believer from entering into the fullness of what God has prepared for them, it's that they struggle to believe in God's willingness to bestow the blessing or to bestow His fullness upon His people or His favor upon His people. For most of us, we've settled in our minds long ago that the Bible is absolutely true. That the message of the Bible is true. The claims of the Bible are true. The power and the vastness and the size of God. We have no problem with that. But our struggle that I'm sure that many of us still face from time to time within our lives is with God's willingness to bestow upon us the fullness that the Bible speaks of or the blessing that it speaks of or God's favor upon our lives that the Bible speaks of. It's His willingness to do it. That's where we stumble. I never doubt God's ability. My struggle is always in the why would He do it for me? That's the question. We know that He can, but we doubt if God is willing. And I believe the reason for that is twofold and very common, very practical. I don't even really need to say it to you. That is, first of all, that we don't see ourselves usually among the group of what we would call those that are privileged enough to, to attain or obtain God's blessing. You know, we look in people's lives and we, we kind of have a visual example of people that God has blessed. People that are experiencing and reflecting His fullness and living in His glory. And then we kind of compare ourselves with them and we think, well, they're the privileged ones and we're just not that or something. And, and so sometimes we can doubt. We can think that, well, we're just not one of them and so therefore I can't experience the fullness of God. Or the other reason is that sometimes we can't get past our own sense of unworthiness. We know ourselves. 
We know what lives inside of our hearts. We know the thoughts and the corruption and the things that were perhaps in the past that are still there, that we're still struggling with, wrestling with. And those things speak to us. They tell us that, it, that we're unworthy, we're disqualified, that yes, we're saved, but we're just not at a point yet where we can really experience the blessing of God in its fullness. Now, what we discover as we cross into chapter 3 is that the Ephesian Christians had a similar type of the same problem. See, the God that Paul was preaching to them was the God of Israel. The Messiah that Paul was preaching, the Christ that Paul was claiming died for their sins, he was the Jewish Messiah. The scriptures that Paul was preaching to make the claims that he was making, they were the Hebrew scriptures. And all of what Paul was bringing to them and proclaiming was Jewish in nature, but he was bringing it to a Gentile region, to a Gentile city, a Gentile group of people. And so the dilemma that was being you know, faced or felt by the people that Paul was preaching to was that all of the promises, all of the glory, all of the covenants were concerning and given to Israel. And that they were completely outside of that entity to whom those promises were made, to whom they would be given. And so we get the sense from what Paul is saying to them in chapter 3, that that was a stumbling block to them. That they in some way saw themselves outside of the privilege of obtaining what God had intended to bestow upon those that would be called His people, those that would be chosen of Him. There was a great cultural and spiritual rift between the Jewish and the Gentile people. There still is, even to this day, and and you're no stranger to that. We've talked about that in previous studies. For a Jew to eat with a Gentile was considered unclean. For a Jew to fellowship with or to interact with a Gentile was considered idolatry or heathenistic. For a Jew to bring a Gentile into the temple in Jerusalem was considered a capital offense. You recall when Paul went to Jerusalem on one of his missionary trips when the Jews were seeking to take his life and the accusation that they made that led to Paul's arrest was that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, someone who was considered unclean, unworthy. And last week I shared with you that the Gentiles in the Jewish mind served none other purpose than to keep hell hot. That was the way the Jews viewed the Gentiles and the esteem that the Gentiles held towards the Jews was not much better than that. And so there was this divide, this prejudice, this rift between the two groups and it seemed irreconcilable. And when Peter was sent to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, to bring there the gospel of Jesus Christ and open the way of salvation unto the Gentiles. And when the Apostle Paul was sent by God to be an apostle, to lay the foundation for Gentile salvation, it was very difficult for the Jews, even the Christian Jews, to accept the fact that Gentiles would be allowed into the fold of God's people. Some Jews, some Christian Jews, never did accept the fact that God was opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles. 
even to the point where they made it their life goal to hinder Paul's progress and to corrupt this mode of Gentile salvation that God was moving within the world. Now, in the same way that we might see ourselves as unworthy or unqualified to receive the blessing or the fullness of God because of perhaps our past or because of our position in life or whatever else it might be that causes us to doubt God's love towards us. We get the sense that there was a similar sentiment among the Ephesian Christians in that they were Gentiles that were being beneficiaries of a Jewish blessing. Now, Paul has spent two chapters highlighting and defining the riches or the treasuries of God's blessing that's available to his people. That's all he said to us for two chapters is everything that we have in Christ Jesus. That we're adopted, that we're sealed, that we're accepted, that we're blessed in heavenly places, that we're redeemed, and that, that, that everything that could possibly be done by God to bring us to the highest point of elevation within his kingdom has been done and is completed within the lives of those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's given to them the, the highlights of all that God has done. And as we cross into chapter 3, Paul's purpose in writing the words that we're going to read is that he is going to pray that the Ephesian Christians will be able to receive all of what God has done for them. And you kind of get the sense, in chapters 1 and 2, he has laid it out that this is available. And now in chapter 3, he's going to pray that they will receive it. But the prayer that Paul's going to pray isn't until we get to verse 14. So verses 1 through 13, Paul is doing something. And here's what it is. He's removing the obstacle of doubt that they would be experiencing because of the fact that they're Gentiles. How, Paul, can you tell us that we are these things when for thousands of years we've been considered by the people of God to be the filth of the world? When we are less than dogs in the eyes of the people that God intended to bless, how can you be telling us that these things are ours? And there was an obvious obstacle that was there within their hearts, and Paul is going to take the first 13 verses to remove that, to take that excuse away from them so that they can't say, yeah, Paul, that's great if you're a Jew, but it's not great for me. Now, in so doing, Paul is going to remove the obstacle for us as well. Because although we don't typically strive with that same issue of saying, well, we don't, we're not worthy because we're not Jewish, we do have our own hang-ups, don't we? We have our own things in our own minds, our own lives, our own history. Things that stand between us and obtaining all that God has for us. Well, we can't really have it because of what we were prior to our coming to Christ. Because of perhaps some decisions that we made early on in our lives because of some of the things that we gave ourselves to, or perhaps the family history of where we're from. You'll hear of generational curses and all the rest. Hey, if you struggle with that, read Ezekiel chapter 18. But Paul is going to take those things out of the way. He's going to address and dissolve the conflict he knows that his audience has. And at the bottom of it all, it's the question of, he's answering the question of, why would God care about us? 
Yes, we believe that he is. Yes, we acknowledge his power. Yes, we agree, Paul, with everything that you have said so far. We have no problem with it. But our one problem is, why would he do it for me? How can I be a beneficiary of all of this, knowing internally who I am and where I have been? Now, it's interesting that Paul never really answers that question. He he never says and tells us, well, here's why God is opening this up for you. And the reason why is because he can't answer that question. No one can. In fact, we're going to spend all of eternity trying to figure out why God would bestow such a great blessing upon anybody, much less us, the least deserving of all. So Paul doesn't really answer the question. He continually calls it a mystery. He says it's a mystery. And the truth is that the Bible never answers that question. It tries to. It uses the word love. And we've talked about the love of God and its fullness and what it means, but there's not a man alive that can really comprehend and understand what it is. And no one can really address the question, why would God save us and then bless us and then raise us and then seat us in Christ and give us what he's given to us? Why? No one can ever answer that question. It's a mystery. And thus Paul continually is going to bring this up before us. And so the point of what Paul's doing here is not that he's trying to answer that question of why, but rather what he's doing, and this is the point, is that he's simply trying to point out to us and remind us that though we'll never understand why God has done for us what he's done, the fact of the matter is that he has done it. It's not something that we'll understand or comprehend, but it's something that we must embrace. He's done it. We have access. We are in, if you would. And so chapter 3, it breaks up this way. Verses 1 through 13, Paul is going to tell us the mystery of God's favor or God's blessing. And then in verses 14 through 21, we hear his prayer for God's blessing and God's favor. So verses 1 through 13, the mystery of God's favor. And then in verses 14 through 21, the prayer for God's favor or God's blessing. And so, if you're keeping notes, number one, the mystery of God's favor upon men. And these verses break down really into four sections. Paul's going to look at this from four different angles or through four different lenses. First of all, he's going to give to us the revelation of the mystery. Then he's going to give us the explanation of the mystery. Then he's going to tell us the proclamation of the mystery. And then finally, he'll finish it with the intention of the mystery. And then we'll decide if we have time to look at his prayer. But he begins by talking to us about the revelation of this mystery. In verses 1 through 3, read with me. Paul writes, he says, For this cause... I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation or the stewardship you might have in your Bible or the entrustment of the grace of God which is given to me to you word or toward you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote before in few 
words. He begins by reminding them that his life belongs to God. He calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. In Paul's last meeting with the elders of the church of Ephesus, it's recorded there in Acts chapter 20. As Paul met with them for the last time, he had spent three years establishing the church, laying the foundation of what they would become. And as Paul was leaving them for the last time, Paul spoke these words. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he said, And now, behold, I go, bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, except that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Now listen, verse 24. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul testifies to them as he leaves for the last time and he says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm not sure what's going to happen when I get there except I'm sure of one thing. That bonds and afflictions abide with me. But he says, but none of these things move me. Because I don't count my life dear unto myself. In other words, I'm not my own. I don't belong to myself. What happens to me there is none of my business because I don't own my steps. My steps are ordered by him and therefore what he has purposed and ordained for my life, that is what's going to be. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem and sure enough, that's where Paul is arrested and he will spend the rest of his earthly life, the rest of his earthly ministry, serving from a cell. And thus, as we come into this portion here in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writing from prison, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I'm the prisoner of Rome, or the prisoner of the lies of the Jews there in Jerusalem that spread a rumor about me bringing a Gentile into the temple when I didn't, you know. And he doesn't vindicate himself or speak concerning the injustice that surrounded his imprisonment. But rather, he looked at where he was at that moment as it being God's perfect will for his life where he was. He wasn't a prisoner of the Jews. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ because his life belonged to Jesus Christ. Now, this is significant. Why? Because it was in this place of absolute surrender this place where Paul's life completely belonged to God and to nothing else. His life didn't belong to his circumstances. It didn't belong to his goals. It didn't belong to his ambitions. It didn't belong to the good or to the bad that would happen to him. It belonged to God. And when Paul came to that place where everything he was and everything he did was God's, it was then that God gave something to Paul. It's what Paul brings up in verse 2. He says, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Now, the word dispensation there in the King James, you might have it in the New King James or in the NIV as the word stewardship or an entrustment, if you would. A stewardship or a dispensation, a dispensing of something for the sake of taking care of it, is literally, and listen, you can write this down, 
the management of a household, business, or other concern on behalf of someone else. Paul was given something by God. He was given a stewardship, something that he was to take care of, to oversee, to kind of take care of and and use and invest. It was given to him by God, and he tells us what that entrustment or that stewardship was. It was the grace of God. The name of the account that was delivered to Paul for his stewardship was called the Doctrine of Grace. And if you've been with us as we've gone through the book of Galatians, and as we've gone this far through Ephesians, we understand that the Apostle Paul was the Apostle of Grace. If you were with us when we studied Romans, and Paul gave to us that treatise, really, the manifesto, the doctrinal deed of what Christianity is all about, and it's nothing more than the grace of God, given and revealed through Paul more than through any other New Testament instrument, except for, of course, Jesus, who is grace, you know. In him is grace and truth. But Paul was the apostle of grace, and here he tells us that this was an entrustment that was given to him by God. And he tells us there in verse 3 that this entrustment was given to him by revelation. He says, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words. He calls this doctrine of grace that's been given to him by God a mystery. Because for as much about grace that we know, because it's been given to Paul, who then wrote it for us, and we can study it and apply it to our lives, for as much of it as we know, there's infinitely more that we don't know. The grace of God, so powerful, so huge, so impacting in our lives, and yet there's so much about it that we have no clue. The why of God's grace. Why would he show us his grace, his favor, his love? For what? For what cause? I mean, if we saw an anthill that was completely diseased and disgusting, we wouldn't become an ant and go die for the ants. We would pour gas on it and burn it. That's what we do with ant farms, you know, and things that are in places that we don't want, but not God. Who could see so much further than what we can, he died for us. And though we can understand the concept, we'll never understand the intent. Why would God do this for us? It's a mystery. So in your mind, what Paul is telling us concerning the revelation of this mystery is that, in a sense, we have a man. His name is Paul. And he is consecrated unto God. He is set aside for the express and singular purpose that God has for this man's life. And in that place of consecration and separation, God delivers to this man a briefcase. It's an entrustment. And on that briefcase is written the word, in quotations, mystery. And as Paul cracks open this this briefcase and and, and examines the contents of this entrustment, he finds inside a document that's called the grace. And as he reads this document, there's an instruction that's written upon the top of it that his objective is to spread it around. That what he is to do with what he has been given is he is to, first of all, apply it, internalize it, receive it, and live it, And then he is to give it away, to spread it around, to make it known, he says, to reveal it. So that all men might understand what is the hope, what is this grace that's been given. 
And so, Paul tells us the revelation of this mystery. It was given to Paul by God, and then he moves on to explain it in verse 4. He says, Whereby, when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. When you read my explanation of it, which we have done as we've studied Galatians, which we have done as we've studied the first two chapters of Ephesians, He said, once you read it, you will understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ concerning the grace. And then he says in verse 5, which in other ages, past times, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He tells us there in that section, he says that in times past, listen, it was not made known as it is now revealed. In times past, it was not made known as it is now revealed. In other words, what Paul is saying is that this mystery, this grace that we've been given, that's been bestowed upon us, is not something that's new. This revelation that he's speaking of is not something that he dreamed up or that he ate some bad cactus while he was there in the desert of Arabia and he had a vision and something came to him that no one had ever heard of before but it was so powerful and so real that it just had to be true. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that it was spoken of but it was never understood. It was not made known as it is now revealed. It's not new, it's just been revealed. And what we discover when we turn the pages of the Old Testament is that the doctrine of grace or the fact of Gentile salvation is something that was spoken about from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, when God called Abraham who would be the father of the Jewish nation, what was the promise that God made to Abraham? Genesis 12 3, he said, in you, that is in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Not just the Jews singularly, but all people, all cultures, all nations would be blessed. Again, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, again, God speaks to Abraham, and he says, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. If you're taking notes, God says it again in Genesis 26, verse 4, and then again in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. In Psalm 72, verse 17, the psalmist tells us that the Gentiles will call Him, that is the Son, blessed. It says, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in Him, and all nations shall call Him blessed. Not just the Jews. Not just that particular race of people that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But all nations. It was foretold by the prophet Isaiah that Messiah would come to the Gentiles. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Again, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he writes, he says, I will also give thee for a light unto the Gentiles. Again, if you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 53, 54, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. 
And then the prophet Joel spoke of how the Gentiles would receive the Holy Spirit of God. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it says that it shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions, and on my servants and handmaidens will I pour out of my Spirit, says the Lord. That throughout all of the Old Testament, God foretold, he foreknew that salvation wouldn't just be for the Jews, but that Messiah was coming to be the Savior of the entire world. There it is. There's the Christmas message. I knew I'd get it in there somewhere. But Paul tells us here that it was not made known in those times, in those days, by those prophets. It was not made known in the way that it is now revealed. And then in verse 6, he tells us what that mystery is. He defines it. And if you want, if you you have a highlighter, you want to circle verse 6, because verse 6, he gives the best definition of this mystery that's available in this text. And here it is. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That this is the great obstacle The great stumbling block that's keeping the Ephesians from embracing all that Christ has done for them is the fact that they are not Jews. That they don't belong, that they're aliens, that somehow they're less than those that have Abram's seed, Abram's blood, Abram's genes. But here Paul says this is the mystery, that the Gentiles, those that are not descendants of Abraham, That they should be fellow heirs. That means the same. That doesn't mean inferior or included or adopted or second class or you can sit in the back of the bus. But they would be fellow heirs. And of the same body. Not separate factions where you have, well, you have your completed Jews and then you have your saved Gentiles. No, 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 no. It's the same body. There's only one. And partakers of his promise, which is in Christ, and it's because of the gospel, which points right directly to the blood of Jesus Christ. That great treasure that includes, that allows us to lay claim, to have a stake in who God is. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, partakers of the promise in Christ, and it's because of the gospel. And so Paul tells them about the revelation of the mystery. And then he gives to them an explanation of the mystery in verses 4 through 6. And next, as we move forward, he talks to them about the proclamation of the mystery in verse 7. He says, whereof, connecting it to this briefcase that's been handed to him, this stewardship, this message that's been given to him. He says, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God that was given unto me by the effectual working of his power. He says, first of all, that he was made a minister of this stewardship or of this entrustment that he was given. Notice that. Notice that only God can make someone a minister. Paul doesn't say, I chose the ministry. He doesn't say that I studied for the ministry. He doesn't say that he asked for the ministry. He says that he was made a minister according to what had been delivered and given unto him. Now, 
It is not wrong for a person to go to a theological seminary and study to be in the ministry. Neither is it wrong for a person to desire to be in the ministry. In fact, Paul said that that was a good desire in 1 Timothy when he was talking about bishops and elders and pastors and such. He said that if a man desires that office, that he desires a good thing. So it's not wrong for a person desire to be in the ministry. And it's not wrong for a person to do everything that's within their power and their capacity to prepare themselves to be called into the ministry by God. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But at the end of the day, only God can make someone a minister. A seminary can't make a minister. Discipleship, programs, study, none of that can make anybody a minister. Only God can choose and call someone into the ministry. It's interesting to me that when Paul was first saved, he himself endeavored to be in the ministry. As soon as he was healed of his blindness and filled with the Holy Ghost, it tells us that he went into the city of Damascus. And that he preached Christ with boldness and he disputed or argued daily with the Jews that were there. They seek to kill him. And so he escapes Damascus and he goes to Jerusalem where it says that he essayed to join himself to the disciples. And again, with an element of human strength and the power of his intellect, he reasons with them concerning Christ. He takes his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and he endeavors to be a part of the ministry there. But the result of all of Paul's efforts, as you read Acts chapter 9, is that he made a mess. And that ultimately he's called in by the apostles. Now, think about this for a moment. You ever go to the principal's office when you were a kid? Now, think about this. There's probably between five and 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem at this time. And Paul has to go to the apostles' office. This is not good. And guess what they say to him? They say, Paul, listen, we're so glad you're saved. We're so glad, Paul, that God is doing something, that he's got a plan. Would you do us a favor, Paul? Go home. Read it. Acts chapter 9. They send him home. They said, go to Tarsus. Get out. Go where you were from. Let us have peace. And then it says in the next verse that then the churches had rest in all of Judea. See, Paul, early on in his Christianity, he endeavored and tried to be in the ministry, but that wasn't God's call upon his life at that time. And what Paul learned from that experience, and it took him 10 years to learn it as he separated himself and got intimate and became aware of who Jesus is and what Jesus does within a person's life. What Paul learned from that is that his responsibility was to yield his life completely into the hands of God and that the rest was none of his business. That what God then did with his life after it was completely consecrated unto him was not up to him. It was up to God to do with it what he would. And it was then, once Paul came to that place, that God said to him, now I've got a call on you to be in the ministry. And it says, Paul says, he was made a minister as he discovered the grace of God that was in Jesus Christ. He was made a minister by God. And... We find that his call to the ministry had nothing to do with the strength of his intellect. Nor with his human strength or his resolve or his stubbornness that were all characteristics of his personality. 
And it had nothing to do with Paul's diligent study or his skill to be able to perform that which he was being called to do. It had nothing to do with any of that. How do we know? Because if you read on in verse 7, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. That Paul's ministry had everything to do with the fact that God was giving grace to him and calling him into the ministry by grace. It had nothing to do with him at all. The how and why of how God calls and chooses ministers is completely unknowable to us. Why God chooses certain people, why he doesn't choose others to perform service in his name, it's a mystery. It's part of the mystery of grace. We'll never understand it. There's no pattern. There's no formula. There's absolutely no sense because God will use the most unsuspecting person who seems to be the most unqualified to do the greatest work. And many times God will overlook the person who seems the most qualified, that has it all together, that has human wisdom and human intellect and all the rest that you would think they would be so powerful and God will overlook that person and use someone else. Why? Because the call to the ministry is completely a work of God's grace. And it has nothing to do with anything else. And then he says, as he goes on in verse 7, according to the gift of the grace of God that was given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And Paul is telling us that there was definitely a work that God performed within my life that prepared me for the place of ministry that he called me to. That it wasn't this, this, okay, well, this grace, uh, Paul, go. That yes, there was a, there was grace, there was a call, but there was also a working into Paul those things that God wanted to work out through his life. And thus there was a time of preparation. Paul spending 10 years in the backside of the desert, serving in obscurity in the city of Tarsus, working with his hands. Learning who God is as God effectually worked. This tells me that there is a such thing as a seminary of the Holy Ghost. It's the most powerful and effective seminary that there is. And anyone that's called by God or that will be used by God goes to the seminary of the Holy Ghost. And only God knows for what span of time and for what length and span of purpose they will be there for. But this I could tell you is that first of all, he is powerful enough to produce in the life of someone he's calling those things that he wants there. And that number two, his ways of doing that are very effective. See, if you study doctrine in a theological seminary or from a textbook or an online correspondence class, you can forget the things that you learned. Or you need a booster, you know, or, a, a, you know, a, you need to refresh. But listen, when God teaches you something, it's with you forever. Because it's an effectual working of his power. When he does things in your life, it's effective. You don't forget. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. I remember listening, I was at a pastor's conference, this is years ago, and Chuck Smith was there. And he, he doesn't travel much. I, I think as I get older, uh, one of the things that I will look back on and say were priceless things were the, the times that I got to hear Chuck Smith in person, you know. But I remember one time they were doing a question and answer thing at, at a pastor's conference, and Chuck was up there, and someone asked him the question. They said, Chuck, 
your ministry has been so expansive and so huge and your influence over people has just grown and grown and you're on so many radio stations and everybody knows who you are. And I know there's someone here going, I don't know who he is, but, but you will, you know. But, but, but Chuck, they said, how do you stay humble in the midst of having all of that honor and praise and, you know, all of that lavished upon you so frequently? How do you stay humble? And you could hear a pin drop as Chuck just paused for a minute. And then he laughed. <laughs> and he had that big smile on his face and he just looked out and he said, if you touch the glory a few times, you start to learn. <laughs> and that was the end of his answer. He said nothing more. Because why? What he learned is that if you step in and stand and begin to take any praise for anything that God does, God has a way of pulling out the rug from under you and showing you who's really doing the work or who is behind the effectiveness of a ministry or a cause. It is only God that can get the glory. My point is this, is that His ways of producing within our lives those things that need to be there in order for Him to use us come from him and not from us. It's the effectual working of his power. Now, look at the kind of heart that God's minister has. Paul's going to tell us four quick things in verse 8, or three things in verse 8, and then one in the beginning of verse 9 that are to us a revelation of the kind of heart God's minister has. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. The first thing that we recognize when we look at the heart of God's true minister is that it is absolutely humble. Unto me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all saints, is this great grace given. I remember hearing the story of a young preacher fresh out of seminary. And he got his first call to fill in at a church. He was going to be the guest preacher on a Sunday. And he studied and prepared and he had his outline and his notes perfectly prepared and he was ready. And he came in that morning and he had a smile on his face and he had his head held up high and he had his shirt freshly pressed and, and everybody looked. And, and as soon as he walked in, everybody knew who he was. That must be the guest preacher. And as the music subsided and he got up into the pulpit confidently aware of everything that he was going to say, he began his sermon, but just a couple of minutes into it, he started to get cloudy in his mind and his words began to stumble and he kind of lost his place and he got so confused that he, he couldn't speak, he ran out of words. And he was so horrified with what was happening and all the people looking at him that he burst into tears, grabbed his papers, and ran out of the church. And there was a couple of old ladies that were sitting in the front row. And the one looked at the other and she said, If he came in the way he went out, he would have gone out like he came in. It's so essential in the heart of anybody that's used by God or called by God that they recognize completely who they are. Nothing. Unto me, Paul said, who am less than the least of all 
saints. If you were put a scale of all of God's people throughout all of time and rank them according to quality, Paul, his estimation of himself is that he would be on the very bottom. Because he knew what was in him. He knew that in himself he could produce no good thing. And so there was a humility within Paul. Also, God works into the lives of his ministers a sense of privilege. Read on. He says, unto me who is less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's a sense of privilege there that Paul, he looked at what he did as something that he gets to do. That I, the least of all the saints, that I have this privilege that I get to go around and I get to share with people the eternal, vast treasuries of God's truth. What an incredible privilege he has, or I have. He didn't have the point of view that, man, these people sure are lucky to have me around. Or God really knew what he was getting when he called me. But no, he looked at it as, wow, this privilege that I have to be able to do this, to reveal these things, to take what I've received from God and to freely give it away and watch it change people's lives. What an incredible privilege I have, Paul said. You've heard the phrase before, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And Paul recognized that that's the story of his life. And he considered it a privilege to do what he got to do. And so he was full of humility, a sense of privilege. And also the third thing that we noticed there about Paul's preaching or proclamation of the ministry is that there was content. There was content. He says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's telling us that I had a message. I have a message. That Paul didn't go about, and, and he didn't have this mentality of like, all right, I'm going to Ephesus, and I really have to think of something that I'm going to say when I get there. I, I've got to come up with something new, something fresh, something that's capturing, captivating, culturally relevant. You know, None of that was true for Paul. He had this treasure chest of truth there tucked into the scriptures, and he knew exactly what he had to give away the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm, I'm very tempted, and I, I even wrote in no, my notes here, do not go off on a tangent here, because I want to. You know, this whole concept of having content in the message and purpose behind the ministry. But I will say this, that there is a difference between, you know, and I'm talking from a preacher's standpoint, and, you know, I'm trying to understand Paul, is that there is a difference between standing up with the feeling that I have to say something and standing up with something to say. There's a difference. Because there are times when you get that feeling like, oh man, I have to say something tonight. I have to say something tonight. I have to say something tonight. And let me tell you, when that's your perspective, it's hard. Because you're like, oh, I don't really want to. It's not really that I wish someone else would do it, but I have to say something. But listen, when you've got something to say, it's like Jeremiah said, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. He says that his word was in my heart like a fire. And he said, I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. And when you understand the treasuries of God's truth, it isn't like, oh, you, you want me to say, oh, no, no, what? I was sharing with a brother just a couple of days ago. He asked me how I started teaching, preaching, you know, the rest. 
And I said, it's actually an interesting story. I was newly saved. I fell in love with the word. And I was in the Lord probably eight months at the time. And I just loved the word. I couldn't get enough of it, just soaking up the truth of it. And my pastor called me at one o'clock on a Monday afternoon. And he said, hey, Nick, I got a strange thing to ask you. And I said, what's that? He said, my, I, I have this Bible study that I've been teaching on Monday nights out in this other village. And he said, I can't go tonight. My throat is killing me. I'm just coming down with something and I just can't do it. Would you go and teach the Bible study tonight? It starts at 6 o'clock. And I went, yeah? You know, I was like, yes, are you serious? You know, and, and I, I was so excited. I left work right away, and I, was, and I knew from the moment he asked what I was going to say, what I wanted to talk about, this whole thing. Why? Because I had something to say. It wasn't this feeling of, oh, no. Because if it was, then I would have been like, well, well couldn't, couldn't you ask me yesterday? <laughs> no, no, no. It was, no, I'll, yes, I'll do it. Absolutely. Why? Because I had something to say. And that was Paul. There was content in his message. And when people listened to him, it wasn't that feeling that they get like, oh, what did he come up with this week? But there was a sense of expectancy that they knew that there was a message that was burning within his heart and that they were going to get the word of God and that it was going to be impacting and real. Oh, my goodness, it's so late within their lives. Too much content is my problem sometimes, you know. It's obviously clear we're not getting through chapter 3 tonight. But the fourth thing that Paul had is that he had, a, he had a goal and he had an objective. Look with me at verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Paul had a goal in what he was seeking to accomplish through this stewardship that had been delivered unto him. His goal was to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery. Notice that it doesn't say, and to, make, and to tell all men what is the fellowship of this ministry. But he says, to make them see. And it's a, complete, it's a world apart in difference between making someone see and telling someone something. There's a, there's a big difference. Because when you're making someone see something, all you're doing is you're lifting away the veil and revealing what is already in place. But when you're telling someone something, you're introducing a new concept or a new, a new idea to them. And Paul said, that's not what it is. I, I'm not telling you something new. But I'm simply making you see this mystery that already existed and I'm bringing it into the light so that you can understand it for all that it is. And my goal and the purpose for my ministry is to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery. The goal of teaching the Bible, of preaching the word is not for a preacher or a pastor or a teacher to climb up an apple tree and to pick apples and to throw them down to the people that are standing below. I'm the hero. I'm up here in the front. I'm up where everybody can see and look. I'm picking apples and I'm throwing them out to you so that you can have them. And if it weren't for me, you would never get to eat. That's not what preaching and teaching is. But rather, what I'm doing right now and what I seek to do and hope I'm doing 
is rather building a ladder and bringing you up the tree with me so that you can pick the fruit for yourself. That's the goal of what we do. It isn't, you know, oh, if it weren't for me, then you would never see this. But rather, what I'm doing is I'm showing you what the Bible already says. It was right there for you the whole time. And I'm building a ladder and helping you to achieve it, see it, and grab hold of it for yourself. See, and that was Paul's goal. That's the heart behind what he's saying here when he says, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. To simply reveal something that was right there and bring it into the light of your understanding so that you can enjoy it and apply it to your lives and be impacted by it. And so he had a goal. So the revelation of the mystery, the explanation of the mystery, the proclamation of the mystery. And then finally, in verses 10 through 13, and this is where we'll finish, the intention of the mystery. He tells us in verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The first thing that Paul tells us concerning the intention behind God giving this glorious grace, this magnificent mystery that we'll never understand, is that first of all, that we might understand and know the wisdom of God in his intention to reveal himself to us. That it might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. That we might see his wisdom, see his ways. That we might understand how Abraham and what God spoke to him. And then added to through David and through the prophets. And then brought to fruition through Christ. And is now revealing the whole picture through the ministry of Paul. That through all of that we might look at God's plan. And we might say, God you are so wise. Your ways are so right, they're so true, they're so powerful. So the first thing concerning God's intention of this was so that we might understand His wisdom. Second of all, in verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we might understand the eternal nature of the the fact that from the foundation of the world, this plan was already in place. Now understand, let me bring you back to the beginning of this Bible study, is that what Paul is trying to do is eliminate the obstacle. For them, it was, we're not Jews. For us, it's, we have a shady past. We're unworthy. And what he's saying is that through this method of God revealing grace in Christ from Abraham all the way to Revelation, is that we would understand the eternality of it. That it's an eternal thing. That Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. That this was God's intent from the beginning of time. And when we recognize that, it eliminates the obstacles. Because if this was God's plan to reveal Christ and salvation through His blood before there was ever a single tree that existed on planet Earth, then that means it's absolutely irrelevant if I'm Jewish or if I'm a Gentile. It's absolutely irrelevant what I was in my past life or where I'm from or what color my skin is or what I did 10 years ago. All of that is irrelevant because this was God's plan before any of that ever was. To the intent 
that according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, and then listen, what that does in verse 12, it causes that in whom or in him, listen, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. That when we understand this, it takes away the doubt of our unworthiness. No longer is it an issue of if I can receive God's blessing or if these things apply to my life. Because all of that's been dealt with. All of that's been foreseen. All of that's been taken out of the way. And therefore, when I come to God and make the request that Paul is going to be making in verses 14 through 21, I no longer have to have a asterisk somewhere attached to my prayer that says, if I'm counted worthy enough. If you can see past the fact that I'm a Gentile. If you can excuse the thoughts that I was thinking earlier today. If you can excuse the argument I had with my spouse or the attitude I threw at my children. If you can excuse the hatred I still struggle with towards whoever. All of that has been removed. And the result of that is that we have boldness when we come to him. We have access with confidence when we come to him. And that the things that he's provided for us in Christ are ours because we are in Christ. And it has nothing to do with anything that we are. Well, Paul sets us up. But unfortunately, he was too long-winded. And so... Though he set you up, I'm going to have to let you down. (laughs) But you can read ahead. And you can read verses 14 through 21. As Paul prays for the Ephesian church that everything that he's told them in chapters 1 and 2 can be experienced and enjoyed and obtained by them. And that that is the very perfect will of God. You can read ahead. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for your eternal word. So powerful, so impacting, so enlarging. As we understand, Lord, that your plan, your purpose is so much bigger than anything we can comprehend. The glory and the mystery of your grace. That before the foundation of the world, in some way that we could never understand, there was a lamb that was slain. That in your mind, the whole plan of the fall and the redemption of man. Each one of our faces in your mind before time ever began. Each one of our days perfectly understood by you. Every conflict, every word spoken. Every decision that we would make. Every day of our lives perfectly known by you before It was even the rising and setting of the sun on the first day. And tonight we come before you, Lord. We know that your involvement in our lives is so much greater than anything we could even comprehend or understand. And I just pray tonight, Lord, for anyone here that's still standing in that place of doubt or under that cloud of condemnation, constant sense of unworthiness, that even now the power of your spirit would pierce through that haze and that we would all begin to enjoy you 
in the fullness that you've provided for us. Please let us experience the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. The perfect love of Jesus Christ filling. Filling our lives. The presence and the fullness of the Father. Giving us that perfect satisfaction that comes only from you. I pray you make these things real in us tonight. I pray, Father, as we move into these next few days, that you would give us a time to sit back and to slow down, and to reflect and to realize that everything's been done, the price is paid in full, and that we might rejoice in the God of our salvation. Thank you for this privilege, for this truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.